We can hear everything's working, and thanks, Aaron, for getting us in play here today, and uh, we'll join together and try to share some thoughts. So I'd like to, once again, welcome our guests and uh, welcome our Zoomers. Um, As I've pointed out, it's become a regular part of our language and might have seemed foreign three or four years ago, but uh, glad to have you. Um, I... I'm not the regular speaker. Our, our full-time evangelist is away on a trip, and so I just want you to know that this might not be as professional as what um, we should aspire to, but I'm grateful for the opportunity and hope that we can uh, take some value from some things that I want to share with you today. So about, I don't know, about 15 years ago, I used to meet regularly with a group of businessmen in the middle of the day, once a week, and we uh, would would do a study together. And, and there was a 10-week period of time, uh, about 15 years ago, that we looked at Romans 12, and we actually spent 10 weeks just in Romans chapter 12. And I learned a lot. And I want to share some of that today with you um, uh, because it's definitely stuck with me, and I think it's very relevant. And I want to make sure that you understand this isn't my wisdom. Number one, it's God's Word. And number two, I am just repeating some of the things that I learned in that study, that, that you know, material that someone else created. Uh, of course, uh, share some thoughts of my own here, but this isn't original thinking. But when we look at Romans chapter 12, what I would submit to you is it's it's sort of an executive summary of an authentic Christ follower. And that's the way I look at it. And, And granted, it's not all there is to say about Christianity. But it but it says a lot. So let's look at Romans chapter 12 and let's look just at the first two verses here. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing and perfect will. I would ask you, keep your thumb on Romans chapter 12 as we go through this lesson. We'll we'll refer back to it on a multiple number of occasions. So, every parent has a dream for their child. Be a doctor, a lawyer, an astronaut, an athlete, a musician, a preacher, a missionary. Whatever that dream, you do what you can to fulfill those dreams. And as time goes by, as parents, I know you can relate to it, you become more concerned with who they are than what they are or what they do. Hopefully, they become a good person. 
Hopefully they become happy, well-adjusted. And probably one of the more important things is hopefully they become wiser than you were. That they learned and gained a perspective. Hopefully your dream is that that child is rooted firmly in God's Word. Children can be a source of great joy, and they can be a source of immeasurable pain. Your Heavenly Father has a dream for you. It's a wonderful an amazing story of love. For several thousand years, God has waited lovingly, patiently, and yet His people have continually rejected Him. He's tried to guide us in the right way, and we continually want to go our own way. Think about it. Think about all the amazing things that God has done for us. He's provided so much, and yet in return, He's simply desiring a relationship with you. That's it. He wants a relationship with His own creation. Continually demonstrates this love, and yet we reject Him. As children, if your earthly father, and this is to parents mostly that If your earthly father, I'm sorry, first of all, imagine as a parent, if your children rejected you, maybe they have. And as children, if your earthly father had done as much for you as your heavenly father has done for you, how could you possibly Reject your father. And God took the ultimate step. Sacrificed his only son to eliminate our sins. And what of Jesus? Jesus gave it all. Jesus was all in. If you were to be Christ-like, it would be great joy for our Heavenly Father. He wants us to be Christ-like. He wants a relationship with you. The creator of the universe has chosen you. We were created in God's image. He gave us His Spirit. And I liken this spirit to an inner throne. This inner throne was intended for God to occupy. But we allow other things to occupy this throne. Worldly values. Place them before. We place ourselves Four on this throne. And sometimes even Satan is placed on this throne. But God won't occupy this throne if we serve other interests. 
So I have the scripture here. I refer to this a lot because he didn't leave us clueless. He set eternity in our hearts. Why? So we would seek him. If he's not in this inner throne, we'll know. We'll know that something is missing. That's what he's done for us. Once again, demonstrating his love. Giving everyone a chance. Now, some of you in this room might know a man named Tony Dungy. Super Bowl winning NFL coach who uh, happened to be at Indianapolis when they won the Super Bowl. And Tony Dungy co-founded an effort called All Pro Dad. And what their singular goal is to teach men how to be all pro fathers. Taking that uh, lead from, you know, all pros in the professional sports arena. How can you be at the top of your game as a dad? And this was posted on the website some years back, and it really, it really stood out. It's been said that a woman's heart should be so hidden in God that a man should have to seek him before he finds her. What a great thing to teach our daughters. What a great piece of wisdom. I refer constantly in my teaching to the relationship that God desires with us. And I see the Bible as somewhat of an instruction manual on relationships. It's a, it's a lengthy discussion. <laughs> There's a lot to say. But Romans 12, I believe, discusses every type of relationship you have. Sort of, for your old-timers, it's, it's like a Reader's Digest version. So let's take a quick look here at Romans chapter 12 and, and what I mean by this. In verse 1, very plainly discusses your relationship with God. Surrendered to God, submitted. All in. Your relationship with worldly values. We're to be different. We're to change, transform, be separate and apart, unique. Uh, thank you, Mike, for sharing this morning at the Lord's table portion of Romans chapter 12 because it talks in this section as well about our relationship with ourselves. Sober self-assessment. In other words, be self-aware and understand your strengths and weaknesses. Be honest about it. Don't think too highly of yourselves, Paul warns. Even maybe possibly uh, more important is your relationship with other believers and where to serve and love. Serve each other. And finally, our relationship with unbelievers. And what Paul says is that 
we're to supernaturally respond to evil with good. And I say supernaturally because that's not a human thing. We're incapable of doing that without God. I'm 100% certain of that. That is not a human response. Someone punches you in the nose, you punch them back. That's a human reaction. And God has taught us that that's not a winning strategy. God's agenda is simple. He wants to develop your character and make you more like his son, Jesus. God's dream, if you will, is for Christians to actually live like Christians. God doesn't want your religion. God doesn't want your rules. It says in Amos chapter 5, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me bird offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I'll have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-failing stream. He wants you to be Christ-like. It's not a performance-driven life. It's a love-driven life. But there are things we must do. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Act in the manner. How do we give God what he wants the most? How do we give him this relationship? Romans chapter 12 once again, talks about it. The first two verses. Here are the first steps, Paul says, in this relationship. It is to, I use the word surrender, because you'll see in just a moment that that's how sacrifice is ultimately defined. We surrender It's another way of saying that you're offering yourselves as a living sacrifice. You're surrendering surrendering your will in favor of God's will. And then through the power of the word, you're to allow yourselves to be transformed. So that dream child that God desires takes shape. And is formed. It must be deliberate. You must participate. You're transforming, you have to change your point of view. That's what becoming more Christ like entails. So, this is my habit, and I hope you can read that red on the screen up here. It's terrible on the back wall, but. Um, I tended to find the words that we're speaking of, and so we look at sacrifice and what it means. And I want you to obviously 
hone in on the red-lettered definition. The surrender or destruction of something prized or desirable for the sake of something considered as having a higher or more pressing claim. I want you to hold on to that because we're going to we're going to dig in deeper on that. In the verb form, it means to surrender or give up or permit injury or disadvantage for the sake of something else. So let's look at surrender because we've used it to replace sacrifice, and sacrifice has been defined as ultimately surrender. Number one here, surrender means to yield something to the, to the possession or power of another. Also, to give oneself up to some influence, some course, or some emotion. To relinquish. In other words, to empty. And finally, to yield or resign an office or a privilege, etc., in favor of another. Transform. Surrender and transform. Give God control of that inner throne. That's what Paul says. We look at transforming then, and we're familiar with the butterfly analogy, right? The metamorphosis from an ugly little worm to a beautiful butterfly. A total change. It's a change in condition. Nature, I think, is what we're after here, or character. It's a conversion. We're to transform our lives and develop a totally different set of values than what we're accustomed to and that we're prone to. Your mind's full of sin. How can good enter in? Extremely difficult. In a sacrifice, something usually has to die. So part of my question today is, have you buried that will that sits on that inner throne? The nature of surrender is all or nothing. Relinquish. Empty. It's everything. Leave nothing. Nothing on the field of play. It's total commitment. And some of you have heard the ham and egg breakfast analogy, I think. The ham and egg breakfast analogy, see the, the chicken contributed, but the pig, the pig was committed. And I think after Ralph uh, shared with us this week when he was teaching his love for bacon, I think he's really glad that that pig has committed himself to our pleasure. One of the teachers of the law, Mark chapter 12, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, what part of all in did Jesus fail to emphasize? So why would we offer this sacrifice? Paul says, in view of God's mercy. We should want to do this. It's our true and proper worship. Some versions say reasonable. It's a reasonable response to what's been given. Look at the first 12 chapters of Romans. Chapters 1 through 11 We start out with, Paul is speaking mostly to Jewish people in Rome. And he's building a case. He's pleading his case. And he says, first of all, sin is the problem. That's the problem. But he says, again, as Mike pointed out in his discussion this morning at the Lord's table, that we have salvation through Christ. So the problem's been dealt with. We're sanctified by the Spirit through a sovereign God, he says. Therefore, first word in chapter 12. So he says, because of all this, everything that I've said in the first 11 chapters pleaded my case, and so because of this, We should be willing to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. There are these college case studies been laid out before a very prestigious university, their business school. They've been given these case studies. And I want to tell you, More importantly than anything up front, that this isn't an ethics study. This was simply risk assessment. In business, a lot of times you have to assess risk, and so that's what the professor was trying to train. So he lays out these cases, and let me share them with you. Real-life cases. So let's look at John's silver war coins first. So John was an engineer who makes a very modest living. He's a history buff, he's a gun enthusiast, and he enjoys going to auctions looking for potential rare finds, looking for the big one. One day he goes to a pre-showing for an estate sale, and this estate sale was unique because the entire house And everything in it was being sold for one lump sum. So in other words, one bid included the house and everything in it. John sees that the house is probably a Civil War era built home, a Civil War era built home. It's old. It's probably a teardown. It's in bad shape. 
he notices a small stack of old rifles sitting in a corner, and that gets his attention a little bit. But as he looks around, it's mostly old junk that seemingly has no value. His interest is fading, but he goes down in the basement, and he finds this old desk. And as he's looking a little bit closer at this desk, he finds a drawer with a false bottom in it. And so he looks inside, and he finds a bag holding 22 near-perfect condition gold coins that he happens to know were minted by the Confederates during the Civil War. And he gets excited, puts everything back together, and he starts to investigate a little bit further, and he finds out that the auctioneer is expecting no more than about $95,000. And that's probably what it'll take, but that's probably what will get this house and everything in it. So John has a car that he owns outright, small car. He has a small home that he's got some equity in. And he's got some personal property, of course. And it'll be just enough to cover that $95,000. If he sells everything, he can come up with the $95,000. So the question of the class then is, what, what, what would you do? What would John do? Assess the risk. They gathered in small teams, and they were going to be graded, not on their decision, but on their process. How did they learn, or how did they assess this risk? And remember, it was a class in risk assessment. It wasn't an ethics class. Sheila's Picasso. Sheila's an art instructor for a small college She's newly graduated, so she's not making very much money. Um, Those of you that might know, art doesn't pay well typically in a lot of occasions anyway, so it's a struggle. But she loves what she does. And in the course of her her life, she's managed to gather a small art collection of her own. Some nice paintings have a little bit of value to them. During her summer break... She goes to the south of France to visit museums and art galleries and to just enjoy her passion for art. And she hears about this art sale that's being put on by a small town out in the country, and it's a fundraising effort to help raise money for this new school in this community. The townspeople, who many have been there for generations, they've taken the art that they've collected over the years, and they donate this to the cause. They're selling these pieces of art, and and there was one piece of art that was known to have significant value. But it was deemed to be a copy, a legitimate copy, and an old copy of a Picasso. And it was valued at $30,000. Hila looks at the painting very closely, and she can't believe her eyes. The villagers said it was a copy because Picasso always signed his work with his first and last name, full name, and this one only had initials on it. It's a copy. 
But Sheila, because she had done her master thesis on Picasso, knew that very early, the first few years, he only initialed his original paintings. And so when she looked closer and closer at the picture, at the painting, she was 100% convinced that this was an original. She was looking at tens of millions of dollars, not 30000 Either rents an apartment, he has a Honda Civic worth maybe $3,500. She has a little bit of furniture, and she has this art collection that she's gathered that's worth a little bit. But the reality is, even if she sells everything, she's probably, she might not be able to raise that $30,000. She'll have to borrow it. But she can make it happen. And so the question to the class is, what would you do? The skills that they were trying to teach more than anything are this, cutting to the chase. First of all, the discovery would have to be true and valid. That's something that you would have to know. To take this risk, you would have to be confident of the information that you had before you. You'd need knowledge that others didn't have. Gila clearly knew a little bit more about Picasso than the people selling this painting, and John was the only one apparently that knew about these Gold coins in this false bottom drawer. Probably the greatest thing is that they'd need the courage to take the risk, to make the decision to go for it. John was able to to win the bid. He just laid it all out at $95,000 and he won it. He purchased the house, the coins were now his, and they were worth $30 million. Pretty nice trade. Sheila was able to sell all of her art collection, and she was able to sell everything else she had. She was able to borrow some money to fill the gap to get to that $30,000. And she now had a Picasso worth $100 million. It was a prized possession, to say the least. Both of these folks risked everything and came out the better for it. So I think you know where I'm heading here. A biblical case study. Jesus offers some examples here. He says in Matthew chapter 13, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Do these biblical examples mean more now in light of the examples I shared with you? I want you to understand, too, we look at the first example that Jesus laid out here. This wasn't wasn't a foreign or impossible idea, this finding treasure hidden in a field. People didn't have banks. They didn't have safe deposit boxes. They didn't have safes. And so if they wanted to keep their wealth safe, many, many times it was buried in the ground. And unfortunately, if they died and nobody else knew it was there, guess what? It remains hidden in the field. 
till maybe somebody discovers it. And I'll tell you that that nearly happened to my own grandfather. He, I, to be honest, I don't know if he inherited or bought the, the family farm that his grandfather had started and that was actually in position of the family before then. But he was a pretty wealthy farmer in 1920. He did not trust the banks, which turned out to probably be good for him. And then when the Depression came and the crash came, he was concerned about his safety and for marauders and people looking because they're desperate. And so he buried a huge sum of money in the ground the 1920s, when he was just in his early 20s. And what happened was it stayed there in the ground. Until 1977, he had a massive stroke. And it's fortunate that he survived. He laid on his front porch for two days before his youngest son found him there. He was 78 years old. As soon as he got better... He gathered up his eight sons, and he went out and started digging holes until he could find out where that money was buried. So this is a real example. This happens, and Jesus was relating a real example and saying, let's look at it this way. It hit home with the people of that day. They understood, but we understand that larger message about the value of the kingdom of heaven. I want to also emphasize that John and Sheila weren't martyrs. They'd given up so much, but they weren't victims. They gave up everything to gain even more. Forget what you think you have to give up or have given up to follow Jesus. It pales in comparison to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, in a well-known statement in Luke chapter 9, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self, his own soul? What good is it? A certain ruler, we call him the rich young ruler we see in Luke chapter 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. The rich young ruler didn't see the value in the kingdom of heaven. He didn't want to give up all that he had. He was looking at it the wrong way. He hadn't done a proper risk assessment. 
giving it all means to serve God totally. Declaring Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Chapter 9. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back. Fit for service in the kingdom of God. And when I was first learning and studying, I used to think this was, man, this is harsh. This, this Jesus guy, he's, this is harsh. But I understood finally what was being taught here. Jesus said, once you've discovered the free and priceless gift of his sacrifice, nothing, nothing should keep you away. And there should be no turning back when you make that decision. And what happens when you look back and you're holding the plow? Everything goes crazy. Can't keep a straight line. And so let's, let's get to the conclusion here. Let's look back again at Romans chapter 12 and let's look at verse 2. We let God take over our minds. If we transform totally, put him on that inner throne. And then Paul says, we will understand better his will for us. His good and perfect will, Paul says. He'll provide overwhelming proof that his way is best for us. Forgive me for the example, but this phrase, all in, I think was, if it wasn't coined by this Texas Hold'em gang, it was certainly became more of an everyday phrase to everybody in everyday language, this all in. It's a, it's a game like poker, I don't know if they're still showing it. There was a time when they actually would do these Texas Hold'em tournaments on ESPN. Don't ask me why. Every once in a while I would tune in and, and watch just to see what was going on here. It's a little bit interesting. Those of you that don't know how the game's played, it's, it's seven cards instead of a five-card poker hand, but the, the principles follow so everybody at the table here, the dealer deals down two cards and they're face down. No one else can see, but you see those cards. That's called the blinds. No one else can see it, only you can. And then they lay out these three face cards that you see facing up. That's called the flop. Now everybody can obviously see those, and now you're looking at your two cards that no one else can see, and you're seeing if you've got something to go with now. 
Have I got a score? And then the question is, can I beat everybody else around me? That's how we win the game. So you're betting through each stage. You get your first two cards and only you can see them and you're placing a bet. You're doing a risk assessment. What do my cards look like? What are my chances? How much do I put in? And we, we see those flop cards and now you can see a little bit better where you're at and you're required to bet again. And at this point, a lot of people fold. They just walk away because they don't have anything and they don't see the chance or the prospect of two more cards changing their lot in any way. They've done a proper risk assessment and they walk away. The sixth card is laid down. It's known as the turn card. And it's your last opportunity to bet. If you haven't scared everybody else off at the table so that you can rake in the chips, now's your opportunity to do that. And so I'm looking at my cards and I'm seeing these four and I'm, I'm in great shape. So I make the big move. I'm all in. I don't count it. I don't worry about it. I just know that everything in front of me, I'm shoving in because I'm betting that it's worth everything to invest. And so the river card, the seventh card's laid out, the score's tallied, and there's the payoff. All in. Are you all in? Are you really giving God your all? Or would you like to? We take this opportunity, in our tradition we call it an invitation. We're making an invitation today. It's an opportunity to enter God's kingdom today and to become a loyal servant, fully committed. The great thing is that you can have your sins forgiven by declaring Jesus as the one and only Son of God, and by being baptized, being transformed and walking in the newness of life. Maybe you've fallen short. Maybe you're looking inside today and you're saying, I haven't been giving my all. You'd like some prayers for that. If you want strength or forgiveness, you have that opportunity to do that as well. So whatever the need, would you please come forward this morning as we stand and we sing together?